continue that worship, I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn to the book of Romans. Indeed, we return there. Romans chapter 6, if you're visiting with us, another warm welcome to you. Don't have a copy of God's Word, just look in front of you. You'll see them right there in the racks. Take it and turn to Romans 6. As we do that, you're reminded that indeed this morning we return to our study in the book of Romans. New Testament letter, the book of Romans is, that teaches us about the gospel of God. Chapter 1, verse 1 of this letter, the gospel of God. Paul opened this letter saying of this gospel that he is not ashamed of it. You remember that? Paul proclaims it. It is Paul's confession. Why? Chapter 1, verse 16. Because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. That is the Jew first, then also the Greek. And that is precisely what we have seen in this book, have we not? That's what we've seen. In the wake of the utter inability, depravity, and unrighteousness of man, chapters 1, 2, and 3, in the wake of that, in spite of mankind suppressing the truth and being given up to themselves, even though there is none righteous, no, not one, No fear of God in man's eyes. In spite of all that, Romans 3, 21 says this, but now the righteousness of God. But now, contrast, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God, listen, through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. There it is. Humanity is not left to themselves. Men and women of all kinds are offered salvation. How? Through the righteousness of God revealed and given in Christ Jesus, God's Son. The righteousness of God administered to those who believe by faith. Those with faith like Abraham, remember chapter 4, the father of faith, said of this in the letter, verse 11, he received Abraham the sign of circumcision as a seal of what? The righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. In other words, he had faith first. The purpose was to make him, listen, the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And we looked at that. Righteousness counted as well to all those of faith, which is, when we speak of faith, as we've been learning in this book, the righteousness of life, the humanity of life, which we recall was the contrast set forth in chapter 5. The humanity of life contrasted to the humanity of death, a humanity, remember, that was in Adam. Mankind's default humanity, mankind's default father, if you will. All humanity created in Adam, thus present with Adam in the garden as he stood as humanity's representative, our representative, as such in the garden, in Adam, as we learned, in the garden, in Adam, all humanity sinned. From that original sin, death reigned in all humanity. 
as again we saw and studied in this letter. However, under the headship and lordship of Christ, and only that way, one's position changes. This is the glorious good news, right? That underpinned with this news. This is it, that one moves from death to life when Christ is Lord. One moves from guilty to not guilty. One is free. Now, as we pick up our study here to start chapter 6, we are going to consider more that transition as the apostle takes us there. It is a change. Listen, it's a transition, and it's a change that has implications. Faith, righteousness, union with Christ must have implications if it really is that. Justification is not just a new position before God. It is that, but it's, of course, much more. It's the beginning of new life. Not just a new position, new life. Justification is the beginning of sanctification, the process of being set apart. And sanctification is the process that moves us from justification to glorification. I believe I speak for many Christians in this room when we would say we would love to be instantly glorified, wouldn't we? Especially in this day and age, we would love that, but that's not God's plan for us. That's not the way he decreed it. Our position changes before God, but now we live under God in light of that change. And that reality, beloved, is what Paul will cover in the next few chapters, specifically 6, 7, and 8, as we look at the doctrine of sanctification. And sanctification answers questions like this, what are the implications of our justification? What are the implications of this new position before God? What are the implications of having a new head, a new Lord? What are the implications when Christ is head and not Adam? That's where this letter is going, and especially so in the chapter set before us, 6. So let's look at it now. Turn with me to verse 1. We'll read the first few verses. Romans 6, 1 to 4 says this, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Let's pray. Our Father, Lord, we think of Not only reading those verses, but seeing a picture of that already this morning. And Lord, we pray that the truth that you are conveying in this text, Lord, would be pressed deep into our hearts, no matter what our soul condition is this morning. And Lord, we pray we would walk away changed. We ask and pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Paul says, look again, all of us. All of us, Jew first, then the Greek, Jew or Gentile, that's all of faith. Any who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death, verse 3. That means, believer, you are now dead to sin. That's the implication. That's our first point. You are dead to sin. Dead to sin. Back to verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? 
Paul likes to employ questions as he conveys God's truth. In fact, you're going to see this same question format in chapter 7, verse 1. And we saw it, of course, in chapter 4, verse 1. This is a a mechanism Paul employs to engage the reader. He, He likes to do that to pull us in, to make sure we're tracking with the the argument from the Holy Spirit. But it also demonstrates, when we think of the Spirit's authorship of these words, that the Spirit knows our thoughts. The Holy Spirit knows how we're tracking with this argument. In this case, consider where our thoughts might take us. Look at the end of chapter 5, verses 20 and 21. Consider where your thoughts may take you. Look at verse 20. We'll read it again. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through the righteousness, or through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Where sin increased, this is where we left off, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Sin reigns, but grace more. Do you see that? Maybe you've heard, or maybe you can consider the thoughts that that arouses. Yes, grace, grace, God's marvelous grace. I know my sin, but listen to me, I know God's grace. Maybe you know that. A few years ago, a young man I was sitting in front of said basically that exact same thing to me. And we had sat many times together. And you know it was the same refrain. I sin, sin, but I'm thankful for God's grace. And we met over and over again, and it was the same refrain. Yes, I know my sin, Jason, but I just know God's grace. That young man was a picture of continuing in sin, verse 1. By the way, when you look at continuing in sin, it means to remain and stay in place and As I look back now on that refrain, it sounded very good. He said the things that you need to say, right? You need to say that in the wake of sin if you're going to confess Christ. Yes, I sin, but God's grace. My sin increased, but God's grace abounds. That's what you need to say, right? And so it went. His sin remained. His sin increased. But listen, he kept claiming that God's grace abounded. Do you see that? And and so I see, and I pray you do too, the problem there. My sin increased, but God's grace abounded. And so it goes for many yesterday and today, persistent sin. There may be the right-sounding profession, but persistent sin is tucked well behind grace. You know that posture. Yes, I sin, but God is gracious. God is gracious. Now at face value, that is soothing. And you'd say, well, what is wrong with that? That's why we're Christian. But if we're being honest, and we talk about remaining in sin and persistent sin, oftentimes that mantra functions to simply pacify our sinful habits, doesn't it? Is it not? We sin and we say, who doesn't sin, right? Who doesn't sin? But let's not fret because there is grace. That kind of thinking, listen, will persuade and it continues to to this very day. But it's nothing short of a stripe of antinomianism. And some of you know that teaching. Antinomianism, the word simply just means no law. 
Certainly in belief for some and no law, but in practice for others, right? I'm functioning now as if there is no law. And you know it, the belief that the Old Testament was the time of law, but now we're New Testament believers in the era of grace. Now grace reigns. And in one sense, you see the danger. It does, doesn't it? It does. I mean, if anything, the Old Testament shows us we cannot keep law. The argument continues to go. And so we just need to rejoice that grace came in the New Testament. And you know what grace did? It helped us cope. That just sounds so good that it can't surprise us that it's espoused by many. It just sounds downright Christian and biblical. As such, it's not just grace that abounds, but antinomianism abounds. Cheap grace abounds. Jesus is not my Lord, yet teaching abounds, and sin persists and remains. With this repeated defense over and over, yes, yes, I sin. I know and I'm trying, but hey, God's grace covers it. True Christian, you hear that and you recognize and you must, true believer, something is wrong. I pick on fictitious Bob and Jane. Let's pick on Jack and Jill. And Jill says to you, you know what? I'm in this marriage and I just, it seems like I'm just sinning and offending Jack more and more and I just increase in that. But you know what? Jack forgives and he brings grace. And you rejoice with Jill and say, praise God for that. That would be one thing. And you'd want to help Jill in her offenses, right? But wouldn't it, Westmount, be something else if Jill said this to you? You know what? I take comfort in the fact that even though I sin over and over against Jack, he gives me grace. I've got a great marriage. I can just sin and he'll forgive me. You might say, something's wrong, right? It would be something else entirely if Jill said this. You know what? I just increase in my offenses. That's who I am. I just recognize I do that. I can't help myself. And you know what? Actually, when I turn to Romans 6, this is what I see. The more that I sin, the more Jack's greatness is amplified. So actually, I don't really sweat that at all. In fact, our marriage is a picture of the gospel. We smile and laugh, but we realize... We do that, don't we? In fact, every time we say God's grace covers it, that's exactly what we do. And we know there's something wrong. We are violating the heart of grace when we do that. And you can see rightly, one may say, Jill, are you really married to Jack at all? Jill, do you really love him? Because you seem more concerned about how you'll be appeased in it versus how you are responding to Jack. And so it is with the Christian. The one clinging to grace has lost sight of the one giving the grace and says, at least I'm okay. But what about the glory of God? Paul picks up that question and I pray We feel that as we go into verse 2, because that's Paul's response. Look at verse 2. Verse 1, what shall we say? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Look at what Paul says. By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? This is so rich and helpful for us. Let's unpack this. 
Look at it, by no means. We've seen that strong rebuttal already in chapter 3 multiple times. The strongest way that he can say, perish the thought. We're going to see it again in chapter 7. In other words, Paul says, enough of that thinking. Enough of that thinking. That is absolutely not in concert with the gospel of God. Again, a strong way to say absolutely, positively not, reader. Paul says, by no means are we to continue in sin that grace may abound. Here, Paul will go even further than just saying, now listen, he's not just saying Christians shouldn't do that. I want you to look at the grammar in the text. He's not just saying Christians shouldn't do that. What's Paul saying? Look at verse 2. He's actually saying Christians, true Christians, can't do that. You see that? How can they, he says? How can we? In other words, we can't. How can we who died to sin still live in it? In other words, believer in Christ, you cannot live in something that you're what? Dead to. You can't live in something you're dead to. And it is at this point that Romans 3, 21 to 26, and most especially Romans 5, right? Those points that they're making come to life. Faith in Christ being justified by Christ, the righteousness of Christ, if true of you, beloved, means you are not just freed from sin's penalty, but listen, you're freed from sin's power. Adam and his humanity of death is no longer your head. You are under new ownership, thus new control. Sin has lost its hold on you. Is that not what we heard this morning? Sin has lost its hold on Matthew and Emma, and Christian, you too. Only a position under Adam's headship is a life that still lives and remains in sin. Mark it. With a position in Jesus, Christ as head, means you can now live, here it is, as you ought to. Which means not a life of sin, not a life that remains and persists in sin, like my friend years ago. For the true believer, it is actually impossible to remain and live in sin. Listen, consider your life now. You may sin, but if you're truly in Christ Jesus, you simply cannot live and remain in sin, right? You can't. It's impossible. So far from trying to hide behind cheap grace in your continued sin... The Christian actually, positionally, in reality, is unable to remain in it. It's just a reality. And again, beloved, we ask the question, this text begs it, how can we live in something that we are dead to? Does that make sense? How can we live in something that we're dead to? I'm sure others have said this. In fact, I'm quite confident they have. You do not see the butterfly moving around trying to live like a caterpillar again, do you? You don't. Why? Because they're a new creation, aren't they? They don't live like they once were, inching around, not using their wings. No, this new creation flies, lives, and acts as he now is new. So too those in Christ. So too those in Christ. Those in Christ, verse 2, died to sin. There it is, died to sin. So how can they still live in it? This dismantles, does it not, Westmount, the watered-down modern church notion of respectable sins. It just dismantles it. Love the word of God for this. 
There's no such thing. And this is Paul's point. The Christian is a new creation. He's dead to sin. The Christian in Christ is dead to sin. That means in Christ with sin, all your I can'ts become I can. All your flesh weaknesses find spirit strength in Christ when you're dead to sin. We cannot be what we once were. Listen, beloved. This first point here, this is identity. This is identity. We cannot inch around in sin remaining in it. It's not who we are. That's not our identity. As you move further through Romans 6, Paul will really press this idea clearly. For now, in these opening verses, in this opening point, he's merely laying out the theological truth. So, how so? How are we dead to sin? Paul goes on to explain. Look at verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Do you not know, Christian? In other words, you should know this, Christian. You see what he's saying here? You should know this Roman believer. You should know this Gentile Christian. You should know this any that would profess faith. You should know that if you've been baptized into Christ Jesus, then that means you have been baptized into his death. That is how you are dead to sin. Hearing that, we realize we need to know and understand what it means to be, and look at the expression there, what it means to be baptized into Christ. If death to sin is tied to that, then we will be helped with a fuller treatment of this doctrine of baptism, and specifically, baptism in Christ. Now, when we hear the word baptism, we think of what? We think of what we saw today, don't we? When you hear baptism, that's what you think of. And that's not incorrect. That is, what has gone on already in this place is certainly baptism, praise God. But it is one kind of baptism. It is a baptism with water. It is baptism that we undergo externally. That is one type. However, it's not the only baptism in the believer's life. There is another prior baptism, and that is a baptism with the Spirit. This is what Jeremy alluded to, the Lord's table, a baptism that we undergo internally. So as Matthew and Emma were immersed in water this morning, that only was the picture of a previous immersion for them, and it was an immersion in the Spirit. Now to be clear, and let's be very clear as we talk about this doctrine, by the Spirit baptism, what are we not talking about? We're not talking about a second blessing, a second outpouring. Many of you are very familiar with that false doctrine of a second blessing, the next tier of Christianity. No, not only is that not biblical, it's it's damaging. We're not talking about anointing, some sort of blessing and immersion that causes tongues, one to speak in tongues. Listen, that's modern man's doctrine, modern man's teaching. It's not biblical. When we talk about spirit baptism, then, we're talking about being immersed, as the term suggests, in the spirit. And that happens when? When are we immersed in the spirit? Of course, at conversion. Naturally, theologically, at conversion. I want you to look at the word baptism there. The word baptism is from the word baptizo, which many of you know means to dip, to immerse, to saturate. Many, many pictures associated with this word, but one that's helpful is the cloth being dipped, being baptized into dye. Picture the white cloth going in to the color dye, and it comes out something entirely new. But in order for that to happen, it must be fully immersed into the dye, 
right? Completely. No inch of that cloth left out, full immersion into the dye. And what's the result then? When that cloth is pulled out, you have complete union of the two, don't you? A cloth that once was, the dye that now is, one with the cloth. That's the picture. And so it is at conversion. Our soul is dipped and immersed and baptized into Christ. And in concert with God's sovereignty in our conversion, listen, this is not our doing. This is not something we do. We're not like the dye maker that says, you know, today I'm going to dye my cloth purple. No, it's not our doing. Look at verse 3 again. It says, all of us who have been baptized, that's in the passive form, if you were to look at that in the original, it's passively, who have been baptized. Something, this is not something we do, but something done to us by the Holy Spirit. And this is what Tyler read for us this morning. Recall, he read from Titus 3. Let me read 5 and 6 again. It says, as God our Savior appeared and saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. There it is. Concert with regeneration. So the Spirit was poured out on us. This is what we're talking about here. Flowing out of this truth, right? Of the Spirit, of us being immersed in the Spirit, in Christ, tied directly to our conversion, our regeneration, And the Spirit poured into our hearts. This is what Romans 5.5 says. The Spirit poured in richly, and note the instrument, through Jesus Christ. This is nothing that happens apart from Jesus Christ. There's no pouring that doesn't happen. There's no filling. There's no indwelling. There's no baptizing spiritually that doesn't happen apart from Jesus Christ. As such, in that Spirit baptism, we become one with Christ then. Because it's in him and with him. And we subsequently, this is where you have the term, right? We have union with Christ. And thus we have a new identity in Christ. Because we're with him in this. And this spirit baptism, listen, it's not something that goes and comes contra to other bad theology. It doesn't like, well, I had the spirit now and it left me. Like some sort of Old Testament administration. No, or, and it's not something, certainly, praise the Lord, that you can lose. Once baptized in Christ, always baptized in Christ. That too, the going and coming, the losing, is all false theology. Your spirit baptism at conversion, beloved, is permanent. That's the glory. Listen to Ephesians. Two passages of read you in Ephesians. Ephesians 1.13, listen to this. In him, that's in Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, listen, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. That speaks for itself, doesn't it? Chapter 4, verse 30, listen to this. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom, Holy Spirit, you were sealed for the day of redemption. 2 Corinthians 1, says that God has given us His Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Christian, your spirit baptism is a one-time permanent immersion at conversion. So to be baptized in Christ is to be sealed by the Holy Spirit in Christ. Thus, to be baptized in Christ is to become something new, a new creation, also as we read this morning, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. To be baptized in Christ is to become dead to something old, and for us that's sin, 
Romans 6, 2, and alive to something new. As the cloth is no longer colorless, and the butterfly no longer a caterpillar, so too we are something new, brand new, when we are baptized and immersed in Christ. More in our baptism into Christ, and this is Paul's point to begin this chapter, we become dead to sin. The cloth is no longer vanilla and colorless. The butterfly no longer has to inch around. We are something new. Sin, for the Christian then, used to be our identity as Adam's children. It used to be our way of life, but now we're no longer under Adam. We are in Christ, and thus to be in Christ means you are dead to sin. Galatians 3.27 says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Westmount, being baptized into Christ is our hope, no matter what we once were. Wasn't it edifying to hear those testimonies this morning of what they once were? Specifically, you heard them talk about their identity as brand new. They are no longer identified with that former way that life of inching around with those sins. No, we are reminded of 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. In other words, they won't, those that practice those things. And then verse 11, and such, Christian, and such were some of you. In other words, you were, but you're not now. Why? He goes on to say, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Beloved, there is all that spirit baptism is in one verse. Gloriously. Listen again. Such were some of you. In other words, you were dead to that. Now you're alive to life. It's no longer that of you. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Verse is not just a great theology of spirit baptism in one verse. It also reminds us that you cannot separate justification from sanctification. You see that? You can't do that. To be baptized into Christ is to be justified and to be sanctified, says the Word of God. Thus, you are not saved, justified, granted a new standing before God. Then later, somehow, you begin to be sanctified and call Jesus your Lord. There's nothing in the Word of God that confirms that. To be saved is to be baptized into Christ and made new immediately, And to be baptized into Christ is to be justified by Christ. And to be justified by Christ is also to be sanctified by him. That is a life from the very moment of conversion, living in and living for Christ. It's all one package at conversion, and your baptism into Christ includes it all, beloved. Now next week, we'll see more on this baptism in union with Christ, verses 8 to 10 specifically. For this week, though... As we close out this first point, we need to move on into verse 4 and the concurrent reality of baptism. To be baptized into Christ is not just to be dead to sin, firstly. Secondly, our second point, to be alive to life. 
to be alive to life. Now let's move on and read verse 4. It says this, We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. As mentioned already, baptism into Christ is union with Christ, meaning we are experiencing something in one sense, and here it is at the heart, we're experiencing something with Christ. Now listen, that doesn't mean we actually bore sin, we actually hung on the cross, we actually lay in that tomb. No, not at all. But it does mean, in another sense, we benefit, or we would say we share in that experience in some way, if we're in him. I want you to look at the language again. Let's start in verse 4, and I'm going to go right through to verse 8. This will kind of give us a start for next week as well, too. But listen carefully to the language. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. All of that, look at those verses again, with him, crucified with him, died with him, buried with him, and as we'll see next week, raised with him. All of that in union with Christ and done for us by Christ on our behalf, but the with him suggests a participation in some way. With him. Verse 4 again, we were buried with him by baptism into death. Look now, look now. In order that, that signals purpose, so that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, which we saw back in chapter 1, verse 4, right? The resurrection power, Christ raised in power, same thing. So the purpose, that's a resurrection, the praise of his glory, Ephesians 1. All of that to say, that powerful resurrection, for what purpose? In order that we too might walk in newness of life. Again, we'll continue in those verses next week. We will see ultimately this new life speaks of our new risen life to come. That's the pinnacle, for sure. At our own resurrection, beloved, that's coming one day. That is new life here. But in this verse, Paul does also something very interesting we need to take note of. He uses a different word for new. He could have used the standard word for new, but he doesn't. Look, he doesn't say new life, but what does he say? He says newness of life. He picks a word that specifically speaks to quality and character. Not, this is not momentary. This is quality. This is of a kind. In other words, this is a kind of life that is experienced and lived out in Christ. Not the reality of it proper, which it is that, and it's true, and we'll see that next week particularly, but here in verse 4, Paul wants to highlight the quality, the newness of this life. In other words, if you have been baptized into Christ, this is your quality of life now, now, beloved, and it's newness. This is what was said this morning, and every time we baptize the new believer, 
You hear it. Rise and walk in what? Newness of life. What we don't say when there's water baptism is like, good, good, good for you. Now listen, just sit tight until the resurrection. We don't say that because that's not what's true. The text, you have newness of life now. Newness now. We do not say that. We instead charge the baptized from this very second of coming out from the water, walk in. Matthew and Emma, walk in the newness of life. Why? Because, remember, their water baptism is on the heels of what? Their spirit baptism. Their baptism in Christ. And that baptism is the one that has implications. That baptism into Christ, spiritually, as you heard, means newness of life actually has already begun, right? You heard it. Yes, and that newness is not only what compels them to obedience in first steps, That newness of life is what drives obedience in every one of life's steps. That is because to be baptized in Christ means that you're not only dead to sin, but it also means in a moment that you're alive to life. Just as the crawling insect is dead to crawling. He is alive now to fly as a butterfly in that newness of life. And listen, if we must, and we have to press the illustration, because I think as Christians we lose this, don't we? In a very modern sensibility. It would be a very funny thing, not to mention wrong, to watch that nature show, to watch nature and see a butterfly trying to inch along and still act like a caterpillar. You would say what? Something is wrong. So too, Christian, trying to act as if we're still in Adam and under sin is not only wrong, but it's alarming. No, Christian, and this is why, because you are something entirely new in Christ. Your life has newness. Listen to this reality in Paul's charge to the Colossians. I want you to listen to this. This is what he says. Another new church. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith, in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And then listen to this. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. Christian, you're made alive together with Christ. That's your newness of life. The life you share now with Christ. That's the reality of being baptized into Christ. That's your life now, not your own. We saw that last week, right? It's not your own. For you, Christian, now to live is what? Christ. That's it. Your life and Christ bound together. That's what spirit baptism is and its results. Baptized into Christ means we're dead to sin and alive to life. Alive to Christ, to be with him and in him. As we mentioned off the top, that is a baptism, but it's not the only one. It's the one we cannot do. It's the one inside of the Spirit and at conversion. This morning, we witnessed a baptism of another kind. We witnessed baptisms by water. Of course, water baptism is the outward picture of what has happened on the inside, right? 
Hence, the New Testament command follows that order and is in line with the doctrine of the baptism of Christ. And it is what? Acts 2.38. Repent and be baptized. Christ modeled it. The Bible commands it. And all those in Christ obey it. Yes, a ceremony of washing with water is the perfect symbol to portray your baptism and your immersion in Christ. And listen, in the first century, they would have got this. They knew this picture of baptism. With the arrival of Jesus, listen, ancient Gentile converts to Judaism, they entered the faith through baptism. That's why they would have known this practice. And listen, it's great to read this week. It's not a pour or it's not a sprinkle. The way that they were immersed into the faith... Every inch of their body had to touch water and be immersed in water. So they knew that practice. Then they would look back to the Old Testament Mosaic Law. Think of the ample passages. The ones often, you can say, what's going on here in Leviticus? The commands to bathe and wash, bathe and wash, thoroughly for cleansing after varying degrees and what strikes you. Leviticus 17.15, Leviticus 22.6. What strikes you is how they must be thoroughly washed, right? That's the command. That's because water immersion is always associated with cleansing and newness. And water baptism, as we've seen this morning, is a testimony to the unbaptized. There it is. Yes, to the unbaptized, maybe here in this room this morning, not immersed by water. Maybe indeed you have been baptized into Christ, but you haven't been baptized by water. Thus, you have not taken the first step of obedience. If that is you, confessing Christ but never washed by water, as Jeremy said, come and speak to us. We do have time set aside in the next two weeks to just walk through what that means to take that first step of obedience. But these testimonies of baptism this morning might speak to others in this room that are not baptized. What do we mean? Maybe... As you sit this morning and you heard the testimony of Matthew and Emma and of newness of life, you were struck and you realized this. You said, that's not me. Those things still have a hold on me. And maybe you were struck to say, but I don't want them to. Something's happened and I don't want them to. They have a hold on you because you haven't been spirit washed. You're still under the control of sin. Maybe that's you, maybe. And if that is you, We also invite you to speak to any of us at the front that have spoken today. God calls you then, if that's you, provoked, convicted, recognizing. God calls you today to repent and to be baptized. Into Christ first. Then water. But that baptism also places you into a body. That baptism into Christ It places you not just into Christ, it places you into the body of Christ. A body, a church, the assembly of the called out ones. Baptism marks entrance into that. So we look at and close with 1 Corinthians 12. It says this, listen, 1 Corinthians 12. For just as the body is one and has many members... And all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. See the illustration? And then this, verse 13. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews are Greeks, slaves are free. All were made to drink of one spirit. 
Listen, beloved, to be baptized into Christ is to be baptized into his body, to be baptized into one body. And just as water baptism pictures spirit baptism, so too physical identification with a local church pictures spiritual identification in the church of Christ. Today we will see Matthew and Emma do both. They've been baptized with water to testify to their baptism by the Spirit. And now they will be placed into the local body of believers right here at Westmount Bible Chapel. 